Welcome back, friends. We are full swing into the spooky excellence of Halloween season, and today we are celebrating that with part two of our mini-series on the history of being buried alive. Last time we talked about death tests and safety coffins. This time we're going to talk about some historic instances of people who actually were buried alive. Like I mentioned last time, a lot of the stories you'll hear out there on this subject are not verifiable. Some legends outlived any reliable sources we have to confirm them, some were exaggerated, twisted through time, turned into urban myths, or they just didn't happen at all. But we do have some evidence for a few real cases. I'll be regaling you with some of those today. Some of these stories are about extremely lucky second chances. Some are not, and in the end, no one makes it out alive. But who does? By the way, I want to give a huge shout-out to Christine for becoming the newest $5 a month patron. Christine, you are the stuff history podcasts are made of. And thank you everyone for tuning in today, even if you're only here for this special Halloween miniseries about death because you like creepy stuff. Now let's get to it. Join me today as we uncover some of the true stories of people who really were buried alive. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. It was October 2nd. The year was 1571. A line of mourners were winding their way down Fleece Lane in the English village of Braffin. At least I think that's how it's pronounced. Apologies if I've butchered it. The funeral bells from the church were ringing out. A weeping fiancé, bereft at the loss of a future she would now never have, was walking behind the pallbearers. The body of a young farmer, gone to the grave unexpectedly and much too young, was inside the casket. His name was Matthew Wall. It had rained recently and the ground was wet. The leaves that had fallen onto the road were soaked with autumn rain, or so the legend goes. Suddenly, one of the pallbearers slipped and fell to the ground, and to the horror of everyone watching, the coffin fell with him, crashing hard onto the road. In that moment of horrified silence, when all were collectively swept up in grief and dread at what had just happened, the crowd heard a noise. It was Matthew. He had been wrongly declared dead. The fall had jarred him, bringing him back to consciousness, just as he was being carried away to his own funeral. Matthew Wall recovered, married his fiancée, had two children, and lived another 24 years. This is a wild story, and it's obviously very old, but there is some evidence that this does stem from a true story. Every year, for centuries, up to this day, the village of Braffin celebrates October 2nd, the anniversary of this event, as their own special holiday they call Old Man's Day. 
According to the BBC, Matthew was extremely grateful that he had woken up in his coffin before it had been buried in the ground. So he put some special bequests in his will so that this event would be remembered. In his will, he stated that every year, the village was to celebrate the date of his first funeral. He said the street his coffin fell onto should be swept on that day each year. That particular request seems a bit odd, since the story said it was a wet leaf tripping one of his pallbearers that saved Matthew. He also said that whoever was living in his house had to pay one pound to the vicar, and the church bells had to be rung out as if for a funeral every October 2nd. So every year, the vicar meets the children at the top of Fleece Lane. They arrive with brooms and sweep the street, after which they are rewarded with sweets. The people living in Matthew's old house pay their obligatory annual pound, and the church bells are rung out as people make their way to Matthew's grave, where they sing, say some prayers, and end the celebrations. There is a YouTube video showing what looks like about a hundred kids sweeping the street, singing, and gathering at Matthew's grave in 2015. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. The song they sing tells pretty much the whole story. And here it is. While the story handed down over the last 450 years may have become exaggerated, or not, who knows, we do know for sure that Matthew Wall existed. We know where he's buried, we know what was in his will, and we know his first funeral has been celebrated for centuries. Not the second one, though. That one stuck. Matthew Wall is far from the only person to barely escape being buried alive. Legends abound about people waking up at their own funerals. Some we can chalk up to urban legends and scary stories told to frighten us through the flicker of candlelight. But some of these stories, like the tale about Nikiforos Glycus, comes to us from written accounts. On March 3rd, 1896, the London Echo reported his story. Nikiforos was a Greek Orthodox bishop presiding over the island of Lesbos. He was 80 years old when he fell ill and became extremely weak. So weak that he had to be confined to his bed for several days. After he didn't wake up for some time, he was declared dead. In accordance with the rules of the Orthodox Church, he was clothed in his vestments and placed on his seat inside the church for something called the Exposition of the Corpse, where people could come and pay their respects during the day 
while the priest kept watch throughout the night. During the second night of this, Nikiforos woke up while in his seat, was quite startled to find himself where he was, and angrily demanded to know what all these priests were doing with him. Apparently, he had fallen into a death-like lethargy and mistakenly been declared dead by what the Echo called his incompetent doctors. I totally get why he would be a little peeved. Unlike Matthew Wall and Nikiforos, not all people who died in past centuries were afforded a funeral. Some, like executed criminals, were sent not to the church, but to a dissection lab where they were to be gradually taken apart in front of medical students who were learning about human anatomy. It wasn't easy to collect enough bodies for dissection labs like the one at Oxford, which appears in this next story. According to an article by J.T. Hughes for the National Library of Medicine, starting in 1549, Oxford medical students were required to view two anatomical dissections of human bodies as well as perform two dissections themselves. That was a lot of bodies, and not many people were willing to donate themselves to the cause of higher education. In 1636, to help with the body shortage issue, the charter of Charles I to the University of Oxford allowed the university to take the body of anyone executed within a 21-mile radius of Oxford. And in 1650, that statute was invoked to acquire the body of a woman named Anne Green. Even though you could say it has a happy ending, the story of Anne Green is a sad one, and today it is widely accepted that her condemnation was utterly ridiculous and even cruel. So trigger warning, this one gets kind of dark, and I'll be mentioning the death of an infant. If that's not something you feel comfortable hearing, skip ahead a few minutes. Anne was a maid employed by a man named Sir Thomas Reed, who lived in Oxfordshire. When she was 22 years old, the sources say that she was seduced by Mr. Joffrey Reed, the grandson of Sir Thomas Reed. The sources do not say whether this was a consensual, quote-unquote, seduction or not, but they all agree that this resulted in the pregnancy of Anne Green, who was definitely not married to Joffrey. This is where Joffrey disappears from the story, apparently not being blamed at all in any way for Anne's pregnancy. Anne gave birth very prematurely without proper medical care, and the child was stillborn. She was terrified about what would happen to her if word of the pregnancy or the stillbirth were to get out, so she concealed the body of the baby boy. The body was inevitably discovered, and Anne was charged with the murder of the infant despite the fact that the baby in question was so small that there was little doubt it could have been born alive. How could that possibly be, you may be asking? Well, according to the Center for History and New Media, in Anne's time there was something called the Infanticide Act of 1624. I've also seen this called the Concealment of Birth of Bastards Act of 1624 in some of the sources I found. This act stated that a single woman who had concealed the death of a child for any reason was to be condemned for its murder. Under this act, the concealment of an infant's remains was considered proof of murder. The only way a single woman could argue her case would be to prove that the baby had been deceased at the time of birth. Most women accused gave birth in secret, like Anne had, and therefore could not prove stillbirth. 
the vast majority of women accused of infanticide were servants by occupation, with many of them being under the age of 16. Anne stood no chance. She was sentenced to death. And on Saturday, December 14, 1650, she was placed on a ladder with a noose strung around her neck. The ladder was pulled away from under her, and she was hanged. There is a written work about this called News from the Dead, or a true and exact narration of the miraculous deliverance of Anne Green, written in 1651. The author is named simply A Scholar in Oxford. It gives us a detailed account of Anne's hanging. It says, quote, She was turned off the ladder, hanging by the neck for the space of almost half an hour, some of her friends in the meantime thumping her on the breast, others hanging with all their weight upon her legs, sometimes lifting her up and then pulling her down again with a sudden jerk, whereby the sooner to dispatch her out of her pain. The undersheriff, feeling they should break the rope, forbade them to do so any longer. Unquote. This sounds terrible, but her friends were trying to help her die quickly in order to alleviate any pain she may have been feeling as she hung there dying. Finally, Anne was taken down, placed in a coffin, and sent to the dissection lab at Oxford. But when the physicians William Petty and Thomas Wills opened her coffin lid, They saw Anne take what looked like a breath and heard a rattle in her throat. They both immediately abandoned any thought of dissection and began trying to resuscitate her. And they really tried. They poured hot cordial in her mouth, rubbed her fingers, hands, arms, and feet. They tickled her throat with a feather. Apparently, this caused her to open her eyes. They, like any doctors would in the 17th century, bled her, bleeding out five ounces of her blood. They placed warm compressed bandages on her, as well as heating plasters. They even gave her an enema with one of these, believing it would, quote, give heat and warmth to her bowels. They placed her in a bed and had another woman get in there with her to try and warm her up. And apparently, that did the trick, because after about 12 hours, she began to speak. At 24 hours, she could answer questions. Two days later, her memory came back, though she couldn't remember the execution or her resuscitation. Only sometimes she said she recalled a fellow in a blanket, which the doctors concluded must have been the executioner in his cloak. In four days, she was eating solid food, and after a month, she was fully recovered. We are extremely lucky that all this happened at Oxford, where incredibly detailed records were taken during all of this. Otherwise, Anne's story may have been lost to history. After her recovery, the justices in charge of her case concluded that the hand of God had intervened, preserving Anne's life and thus proving her innocence. And she was free to go. She was also kind of famous after all of this. She moved to the country, taking her coffin with her. She married, had three kids, and lived for another 15 years. That is incredible. Anne was lucky she found herself in a lab with two compassionate doctors. Not all executed criminals who were delivered alive were afforded the same care. According to the Newgate Calendar, a title given to a number of popular publications on crime, criminals, and executions in the 18th century, a surgeon who was getting ready to dissect a German criminal was quoted as saying, quote, 
I am pretty certain, gentlemen, from the warmth of the subject and the flexibility of the limbs, that by a proper degree of attention and care the vital heat would return, and life in consequence take place. But when it is considered what a rascal we should again have among us that he was hanged for so cruel a murder, and that should we restore him to life he would probably kill somebody else. I say, gentlemen, all these things considered, it is my opinion that we had better proceed in the dissection." Unquote. I hope the guy was at least unconscious when they started cutting into him. Matthew Wall, Bishop Nikiforis, and Anne Green were lucky. They escaped the grave before they were actually in it. But not all stories like this have happy endings. Some end in exactly the way you'd think they would. Heads up, you're about to get a story about someone who was not so lucky. I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of today's episode, WYLD Gallery. All of the art featured at WYLD is created by Native American artists, and it is truly incredible. The bright, bold, pop-style art you can find at their website, www.wyld.gallery, showcases the fantastic creativity of some of the best Native American artists out there, some of who have permanent collections at museums, including the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian in D.C. and New York. Wild has several featured artists. I have personally found the art of Nicole Hatfield from the Comanche and Kiowa tribes to be particularly inspiring. She describes painting as medicine, something that is healing. She draws inspiration from historical photographs of Native peoples and frequently incorporates tribal language into her work in hopes of keeping Native languages alive. At Wild, you can find posters, fine art, original acrylic, oil on canvas, and much more, all online and in plenty of time for the holidays. Purchasing artwork from Wild is not only a great way to add a stunning piece of art to your home or that of a loved one, but it's a great way to support the creativity of some of the most brilliant Native American artists working today. Head to www.wyld.gallery and discover for yourself the striking brilliance of these artists today. Now, back to the show. There is a plaque bolted to a brick wall in a cemetery in Basingstroke, England. Inscribed on it are these words. Mrs. Blunden, wife of William Blunden, Maltster, was buried alive in this cemetery in July 1674. Parliament fined the town for its negligence. This plaque marks the place where the story of Alice Blunden unfolded, a woman who was not buried alive once, but twice. According to the Basingstoke Gazette, Alice's husband William dealt in malt, and she was quite fond of brandy. One night when her husband was away, she consumed a large quantity of poppy water instead of her usual brandy. Some accounts say this was an accident, but it would seem difficult to mistake brandy for poppy water, especially if brandy was your usual drink of choice. Poppy water was a tricky thing. It could do things like ease pain or help you sleep, but it could also be dangerous if consumed in large quantities. 
That night in 1674, Alice had too much, and she fell unconscious. Her maids apparently believed she was asleep, but as more time went on and Alice failed to wake, a physician was called. The doctor was unsure if Alice had fallen into a deep sleep from ingesting too much poppy water or if it had killed her. The doctor was having a difficult time determining death. Alice was a large woman, and apparently this was making it difficult for the doctor to detect any signs of life. He brought a mirror with him and placed it just under Alice's nose and mouth. After he didn't see any condensation from breath on the mirror, the doctor pronounced Alice dead. A message was sent to Alice's husband, William, and he replied asking that his wife's funeral be delayed until he could return to town. But the family chose not to heed William's request. Due to Mrs. Blunden's size and the fact that freezers did not yet exist to preserve Alice's body, she was buried as soon as possible. Some of the sources I found said it was possible that the belief that obese persons decayed at a faster rate, coupled with the hot summer heat, caused her family to push for a fast burial. They wanted to get her in the ground before decay started to set in. According to the Vintage News, because her burial was rushed, a ready-made coffin was selected instead of a custom-built one. Alice was too big for the coffin the family chose, and they had to use sticks to pry her limbs down inside of it before they could close the lid. After Alice was buried, a group of frightened children who had been walking through the graveyard reported to their headmaster that they had heard a muffled voice coming from beneath the ground screams and groans and pleas for rescue. The children were disciplined by their headmaster for telling lies. But reports from children kept coming, and finally the headmaster became frustrated or curious enough to head to the cemetery himself. What he heard shocked him to his bones. It was indeed the crying pleas of the freshly buried Mrs. Blunden, calling from her grave. The headmaster dared not exhume Alice without proper authority, though, which he could not garner until later that night. Seems like this was kind of an emergency, though, and circumventing local authority may have been appropriate, but that was apparently not a thought shared by the headmaster. Later that evening, when Alice's coffin was pulled from her grave, the lid was pried open, and Alice, who had been stuffed in, sprung up from the release of pressure. She was bloody and bruised from trying to escape her coffin, and she was now, once again, unconscious. Instead of taking her out of the grave for some much-needed bedside care, her family once again declared her dead and had her buried a second time. This time they had a guard come watch over her grave in case she came too. But it was a rainy night, and the guard decided to head to the local pub, rather than watch over the grave of Alice Blunden. When the coffin was opened again the next morning after it had become known that the guard had left his post, it was obvious that Alice had once again awoken in her own grave. Her clothes were torn this time, her body was covered in more scratches and a good deal of blood. Overnight, because she had failed to be rescued, Alice Blunden had finally, truly died, probably of suffocation. Three different doctors were called to confirm her death this time. When her husband William returned, he was furious, and rightly so. Alice's family had truly failed, twice, 
to save her life. The case against the family was taken to court, probably by William. The only thing that saved her family from a murder charge and a sentence to swing from the gallows was the original doctor's testimony. He testified that he had been the one to declare Alice dead with the mirror test, a method that, until Alice, had apparently proved to be absolute. Thus ends the story of Alice Blunden, once dead, thrice buried, as she was buried alive twice and once dead. Presumably, they didn't pull her up to check that third time. For her sake, I hope the third time was the charm. What a horrible story. But at least we know the town was fined for its negligence. A lot of these stories take place in the distant past, which is why they're so hard to verify. Today, it would be incredibly difficult to be buried alive, at least in most places. People have woken up in body bags and even in morgues, but they just don't make it all the way to the grave anymore. That's for a few reasons. We don't have to worry as much about getting people in the ground so quickly today for fear of fast decay. We have electroencephalograms and electrocardiograms to help determine when the brain and the heart shut down. With the technology we have and the embalming process that many corpses go through, by the time a body makes it to the grave, an insane number of things would have had to go wrong for that body to still be breathing. But there was a confirmable story I found that happened in the not-too-distant past. This one takes place in 1937. The subject, a young Frenchman, 19 years old, named Angelo Hayes. According to Jan Bondesen, Swiss scientist and author of the book Buried Alive, The Terrifying History of Our Most Primal Fear, the story of Hayes is, quote, probably the most remarkable 20th century instance of alleged premature burial. The story goes that in 1937, Hayes was out riding his motorcycle when he was involved in a terrible wreck. According to Mental Floss, the impact from the crash caused Hayes to be thrown from his motorcycle and slam headfirst into a brick wall. It was a horrific scene, and Hayes' face was so mangled in the crash that even his parents were not allowed to view his body. The doctors couldn't find a pulse, so they declared him dead, and he was buried. And that is where he would have stayed, but for a suspicious insurance company. The insurance company was worried that Hayes' death had been a scam, so he was exhumed for the investigation. When his body was inspected, the examiner found him to still be warm and alive. According to mortician author, TED Talk host, and founder of the Ask a Mortician web series, Caitlin Dowdy, the theory is that Hayes had been in a very deep coma when he was buried one that slowed his breathing down to an almost imperceptible degree. She goes on to explain that this slow breathing is what kept him from suffocating in his coffin. If you're buried alive and breathing normally, you're likely to die of suffocation within a day. But lucky for Hayes, the coma slowed his breathing enough to keep him alive for two days. He eventually, after several surgeries and a painful rehabilitation, ended up getting himself a happy ending. He even became kind of famous in France. According to Mental Floss, he even went on tour in the 1970s with his own safety coffin, which included a food locker, a radio transmitter, and a toilet. 
I'm guessing, though I could be wrong, that the safety coffin was more of a publicity stunt than an actual patent meant for purchase. Hayes spent over 30 hours inside of it at a fair in France in 1974. Good for him. Life gave him lemons, and he made a safety coffin out of them. This next story has a different kind of ending. It was winter, 1884. January. The place was Dayton, Ohio, and the young Anna Hockwalt, age 18, was getting ready for her brother's wedding. Her brother Edward was going to marry Miss Emma Schwind, daughter of a successful local brewer. It was early in the morning. The clock hadn't even chimed its 6 a.m. bell. Anna wandered into the kitchen. We're not sure why. Perhaps she was answering the whistle of a kettle or searching for a warm cup of coffee to help her get ready for what was certain to be a big day full of social expectations, general pleasantries, and small talk. Sounds terrible. Her family was in high standing in the community, and the wedding of her brother was no doubt a much-anticipated event for the family. Not much time had passed. A newspaper article from the Daily Telegraph, published two months later in 1884, says it was no more than a few moments before Anna was found in the kitchen, sitting in a chair, her head slumped against the wall, apparently lifeless. A doctor was called, Dr. Jouette. After a cursory examination, he declared her dead. The papers say Anna was of excitable temperament, nervous at times, and was affected with, quote, a sympathetic palpitation of the heart. This was determined to be her cause of death. It was, of course, proposed that the wedding be postponed, but the priest, a Father Hain, urged everyone to continue with the wedding as planned. Seems a bit inappropriate, but that's what happened. Anna was placed aside, and her brother was married at what was apparently a pretty bleak affair. The Daily Telegraph wrote that she was buried in Woodland Cemetery the very next day. However, her grave, which you can still visit to this day, is actually in the Cavalry Cemetery. Some of her friends had seen Anna's body before it had been interred. They claimed that her ears had what they reported as a, quote, remarkably natural color, as if her blood was still running through them. These friends would not let go of the unsettling suspicion that their friend had been buried alive. They told Anna's parents about her ears and about how they were not convinced the young woman had actually been dead when they had buried her. Anna had been young. Her friends had probably been young. And perhaps their fear was simply the silly musings of young minds suddenly thrust into the painful world of premature loss. But maybe not. Eventually, this horrible thought became too much of an itch at the back of her parents' minds. I couldn't find how much time had passed, but her parents had Anna disinterred. When they lifted the lid of her coffin, they were aghast, horrified, instantly pained at what they saw. Anna was turned on her side. She had torn handfuls of her own hair out of her scalp and the flesh on her fingers had been bitten to the bone, or perhaps torn from clawing at her coffin lid. Her friends had been right. The doctor had been wrong. The young Anna Hockwalt had been buried alive. And now, she was certainly dead. Some believe the story of Anna Hockwalt was an exaggeration for the tabloids, an outlandish story made to sell newspapers. But her grave exists, 
Her brother really did marry Emma Schwind. He's buried in the same cemetery she is. And she really did die in January of 1884 at the age of 18. We have several surviving newspapers all reporting the incident. But I suppose it is possible they were reporting on what everyone else was reporting. It's not like there's anyone left to ask. So you'll have to decide for yourself, based on what we do have, exactly what fate befell the young Anna on her brother's wedding day. Many of these stories are like that. They happened years, centuries ago even. And all we have are newspaper clippings, small-town traditions, old medical reports, plaques and graveyards, and sometimes only local legends to go on. In some cases, the knowledge of what really happened to a great extent rests now with those who have long since passed. But the legends stay with us because they strike a chord within us. These stories of death and second chances and twisted fates fascinate us, even bring us some sort of strange comfort in a way I don't quite understand. They bridge the gap between the known and the unknown that waits for all of us in the end. As Edgar Allan Poe said in his story The Premature Burial, published way back in 1844, quote, The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and where the other begins? That brings our once-dead, twice-buried miniseries to a close. Thank you so much for listening. The next episode will be ready for you in three weeks. Until then, you can get a hold of me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. Perhaps there's a story you'd like to hear told. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing wherever you listen. That actually makes a huge difference and gives the show a better chance of popping up in all those mysterious algorithms. You can support the show if you're able for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation for any amount you'd like. The link to do that can be found under the support tab at historycashpodcast.podbean.com. I'm an independent podcaster, so anything you do, even just telling a friend about the podcast, is incredibly appreciated. Sound effects and music for today were licensed through Envato Elements. Stay safe, stay spooky, and stay healthy, friends. I'll see you again in three weeks with another piece of history better than fiction. And until we meet again, go make some history.